What time is it? You know it's maritime. Welcome to our podcast where we talk about all things maritime. The maritime industry is a major driving force in the global economy, and it affects all of us where we live. Our goal with this podcast is to raise awareness about the extraordinary people and amazing companies in this industry. Hi there, I'm Colin Folon. I'm a maritime lawyer at Schwabe, Williamson & Wyatt, and today I'm talking with Jake Jacobson. Jake started sailing at age seven, and by age 18, he was an engineer. Only a few years later, he became a fishing vessel captain. He's been involved in the construction and conversion of vessels, and he currently works as a surveyor and consultant. He's even been retained by law firms in the Pacific Northwest to serve as an expert witness. As if that weren't enough, Jake serves as the executive director of the Bering Sea Arbitration Organization, as well as the Intercooperative Exchange, which is a trade organization of Bering Sea harvesters. As you might expect, over his five decades of experience in the maritime industry, Jake has amassed so many great stories. He's the author of Chronicles of a Bering Sea Captain, which is available on Amazon.com. It's a great read, and I'd recommend it to anyone who wants to learn more about what it's really like to work in commercial fishing. Jake, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you very much for having me on. Well, it's our pleasure. Maybe you could start by just telling our listeners a little bit about yourself. Well, uh, as you mentioned, I've been in the fishing industry all of my life. I started sailing at an early age on my dad's boats and never really wanted to be a fisherman. I went to college, got a degree in zoology, got a master's degree in neurophysiology, and wanted to specialize in anatomy. Had a full tuition fellowship for a PhD program at St. Louis University in human anatomy, and that was right during the time when the crab fisheries collapsed in the early 70s, when was that, early 80s? And so I, uh, I never made it to St. Louis and never did a PhD program. So I just kept fishing and I've been doing it ever since. It sounds like you avoid downtime whenever possible. I would really love to talk with you about your book. Can you tell our listeners what inspired you to write it? Yeah, I was working as a captain on a freezer longliner in the Bering Sea and the mate came up to relieve me one night and I went to my cabin and laid down in my bunk and all of a sudden my heart just started pounding and just seemed like it wanted to jump right out of my chest and I didn't know what was going on. We were 200 miles from St. Paul Island which would be the nearest medical facility but at the time St. Paul Island was covered with ice and there were no aircraft that could take off or land so I was pretty much stuck out there. I didn't even tell anybody I was having issues. But I thought as I lay there in my bunk experiencing these symptoms that if I survive, I need to let my kids know where I was, what I was doing, what I've done all my life when I wasn't home, and also that I needed to be a nicer person. So I've tried to do that. And and then the book was my attempt to let my kids know where I was uh, instead of being their dad. What a great gift. You know, I, I think without that, you know, so many stories would go untold, whether they're to your kids or extended family or others. And uh, that's that's a great thing. You know, when, when reading your book, it seemed to me it was so clear, uh, and maybe I, I'm wrong, but that, that you were not only to, trying to capture great stories from your life but also to educate people 
Am I right? And if so, why was that a motivation for you? The stories that I tell are outside of most people's experience. So it's, I think it's difficult for them to place them in context. So I wanted to provide some kind of contextual underpinning that they could really uh, try to understand my story more. Nobody's going to be able to fully under- appreciate what it was like unless you've been there. But there have been several shows on TV about fishing and how it is, and people are starting to understand what that kind of a thing is like. And and so I just wanted to more fully describe it. So I, I did try to make an effort to provide some background for people. One of the things that I loved about your book was it was so easy to pick up and enjoy whenever I had time. You know, some books feel like quite an undertaking as a reader, but I found your book to be this collection of really great vignettes. And I suppose I found it to be kind of like the difference between having a really heavy meal and this lovely dinner of tapas, you know, small bites that keep you wanting more. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your method or approach to writing the book. Yes, it's because I have a short attention span, so I appreciate short stories. <laughs> and so it, it, I try to follow in a, in a chronological order through my life experience in the fishing fleet and, not, and other things. And then I added these other stories at the end. Yeah, I, I love how it really does provide a history. You know, one example is just the change in the crab fishing industry between, you know, the derby days and the quota and kind of the the rationalization and the increase in safety over time. And I almost felt like one thesis, for lack of a better word, in your book is that things are just a lot safer now in commercial fishing, especially as to crab fishing. Can you tell listeners why you think that? In fact, you went so far as to title one of your chapters, The Deadliest No More. Up until the fishery was rationalized in 2005, which was, it's the, um, Rationalization is is a term that applies to a type of fisheries management where there's a quota system. And so it's not a derby fishery where people just go out and try to get as much crab or fish as they can in the minimum amount of time. People have quotas, and so the, it allows them to make safer decisions, like when to stay into port in, in port during a storm, and allows them the ability to rest more and to anchor up when the, when they need to anchor up. And there's opportunities that allows for greater fishing vessel safety. Mm-hmm. So that's been a key driver in the improvement of, in the safety that we've made. And despite a couple of tragic losses, it's still a very safe industry now compared to what it was. Yeah, that, that shift from the race, the, the race of all these boats to go out and catch as much as they can before the season was shut down, had some incentives tied to it. Whereas if folks have their quota, they can fish at their pace. And once they catch their quota, they're done. And so you, you remove that. And I think just there's there's been an increase in safety consciousness over the years as well. Bad things still happen, but not like they might used to have in the past. When you and I were talking about having you on the podcast, you mentioned to me an interesting dinner that you had with a producer of the Deadliest Catch television show. Would you mind telling our listeners a little bit about that? We had a dinner and she observed that fishermen, crab fishermen anyway, are people that don't really fit into normal society. And I think there was a lot of truth in her observation. We appreciate getting away. We are independent in a large measure and we um, 
are responsible for what we do, and we're just kind of outside of the world's problems. And for me, it was actually kind of a relief to get away from the rest of the world and get out on the boat, where the only problems that I had were those problems that were on the boat. I didn't have to worry about anything else happening anywhere else in the world except for the weather. Well, I love your your dedication also in the book is thanking, I presume, your wife for, I think, always being there to send you off and always being there when you came back, something like that, or, which is uh, certainly appropriate. I have to say the information aspect of the book, as a maritime lawyer, while I was reading it, I love the fact that your book has a glossary of terms, which makes a ton of sense because there are so many terms of art in the maritime industry, especially fishing. I, I remember a case where I had multiple witnesses who all use the same word for completely different parts of the boat. And I and, I and my opposing counsel were looking like, at each other like, what is going on here? And so you, you have this very helpful glossary, which I love, but you also developed a companion website. Where did you get the idea to do that? It costs too much to print pictures in a book. <laughs> uh, okay, I'll just put in a link to a website and I'll put my pictures there. I put some links to additional information. Now, you know, I published the book and life went on and I really need to go back and update the website. There's more information that might be appropriate for that, but there is quite a bit of information there that people can look at to get some additional perspectives and and some photographs of things that I talk about in the book. Your book has these tales of fistfights and explosions and injuries, struggling to navigate a boat in horrendous weather, races against other boats to find the catch, but also some very poignant moments, as I indicated, in really lovely prose. But I want to ask you, was there a chapter or chapters that were the most fun for you to write or that you're the most proud about? I think it was in a chapter where I talked about my experiences on a a longliner called the Pacific Lady, and it was something to do with uh, killed by whales or something. But it, it talks about my experiences with killer whales, and and it was an obvious attempt at humor. It was true, but I tried to write it in a humorous way, and I've gotten some very encouraging comments from people about that chapter, that section of the book, and uh, so I, I guess I'm I'm happiest with that little section. <laughs> <laughs> good answer. Good answer. Was there a story maybe that you didn't put in the book, you know, but in hindsight, you wish you had, you know, anything that, that didn't make the cutting room floor, so to speak? I had a list somewhere of stories after people read the book that experienced these things with me. They reminded me of stories. So I have a little list going somewhere. I, I tried to pull it up to remind myself of what some of those are. I don't rem- remember what I put in the book and what I didn't, but I've got a list somewhere of stories that I omitted. So maybe if there's a second edition someday, there'll be a few more stories. I was wondering if we might get a sequel. That would be fantastic. You know, one of the things I, I sometimes found in your storytelling with it, that there was this, there was almost an attention to character development for your vessels, even sometimes more than some of the people involved. And was I reading too much into that? Or was there kind of a conscious decision to think of the boats as equal characters in your stories. Yeah, I I don't think that was a conscious decision, but I appreciate that you pulled that out of it. I'm not 
someone who believes that vessels have some kind of a soul or spirit. I think that they're pieces of machinery that we get to know over time. So the longer you spend on a boat, the more you get to know its idiosyncrasies, how it performs in different conditions, and you become very knowledgeable. There's some captains in the fleet right now that have been fishing on the same boat for decades, and they can tell you everything about the boat. When I go onto a boat as a marine surveyor, I just spend a couple of minutes. I have nowhere the ability to understand a boat like they do. And so I'll always trust an experienced captain's judgment over my own. We've mentioned your work as a marine surveyor, but we haven't really told folks who might be outside the industry what that's all about. So for those who are outside the maritime industry, how would you describe what you do as a marine surveyor, your kind of post-fishing captain work? A long time ago when commercial vessels had sails and were made out of wood, they would have losses and the boat would sink and cargo would be lost. And some people were insuring fictitious vessels with fictitious cargoes and making claims. And so insurance companies started to send a person down to verify that the cargo did exist and the boat did exist. And that was the uh, start of marine surveying. So that evolved into the present practice. I was sending someone down to the boat to look at the boat verify what equipment is on the boat, try to discover any problems with the boat, make some recommendations sometimes, and just do a general inspection of the boat and report back to the insurance company. And then marine surveyors will also do jobs for banks and assign a valuation to a boat and do various kinds of things like that. So in addition, it's kind of just a I guess an analogy would be like a home inspection, Mm -hmm. but on a boat, and I think my average report is something in the neighborhood of 40 or 50 pages long, a lot of photographs in there. And so I try to do a good job and a thorough job. Nobody can see everything in just a short amount of time available. But I hope that through my career, I've saved some boats and saved some lives. For folks who are intrigued by that, what does it take to be a marine surveyor? I mean, it it must take a, a remarkable depth of knowledge because it's not like you're necessarily looking at a particular type of vessel. You have surveyed fishing vessels, work boats, a variety of them. So what kind of experience, education, certification does one need to do that? For most of us, we're men and women who just got old and didn't save our money very well. <laughs> and something to do in their declining years. So that's certainly my situation. I, uh, medical issues I had on the Pacific Lady got me thinking about uh, doing something else. And after the Pacific Lady, I actually ran another little boat. And there was a marine surveyor that came down and looked at it, and I was very unimpressed by what he did. And I mm. thought, well, I can do a lot better job than that. How? Oh. That guy was an exception, as I found out later. There are many really great surveyors in the business today, and I don't mean to be demeaning to anyone. Hmm. But that was my experience, and I thought, okay, well, I've got friends in the Bering Sea that are dying. Maybe I can do some good here. So that's why I started. It's a good reason to start. You've also, as I indicated in the introduction, you've served as an executive director of certain trade organizations. 
Why is that something that interests you? And what do you do with that? I'm the executive director of Intercooperative Exchange. Back in 1993, there was a meeting of six fishermen. And we were brought together because we didn't think that the price we got for king crab that year was enough money. And we were members of an organization called the Alaska Marketing Association, which had been around prior to that, I think since the 70s or early 80s, and had kind of fallen into inactivity. And so it was our intent at that meeting to revive the Alaska Marketing Association and keep an eye on prices. I've done the price negotiations, and we also have an arbitration system that is part of our rationalized crab fishery management program. And I uh, participate in those arbitration proceedings as well and deal with other issues that arise that are in the fleet. So to switch topics a little bit about you, let's say we were to get former crew members of yours on the podcast. How do you think they would describe you as a captain? Well, that would be interesting. Probably most of them would say I didn't have a clue what I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of different perceptions about the maritime industry or fishing specifically. What do you think is a, a really common myth or misperception of the industry? I think some of the television shows and things may have created the impression in some people that it's always hectic and always stormy, and crew members are fighting. There are lots of periods with great weather, great fishing. Most of the crews get along fine with each other. I've been on, worked with crews when I was a deckhand. We didn't have to even say a word to each other. We, we were just always so tight that we acted like a single machine. We didn't need to yell at anybody, didn't need to give instructions. People just did what needed to be done. And it was great in those conditions. And sometimes there is conflict and problems and people that don't fit in, and that happens. But overall, I think I would like to leave the impression that it's not all bad. You don't have to stay up all night, every night. <laughs> there are times when you sleep. Or there, there are times when you work and times when you work hard and times when it's rough. But there's a lot of good times as well, and it, it is a rewarding career. One of the things I was going to ask you is, what would you say are some of the most significant changes you've seen in the maritime industry? I mean, five decades of experience. Would you say it's rationalization, or would there be something else that would come to mind? I would say it was rationalization. I, I think that's done so much for commercial fishing vessel safety and inspiring people to be long-term minded, like you were saying there. For there are people that that are bad actors, mm-hmm. and there are probably in every business, every industry. Mm-hmm. But most of the people are are very concerned and about the resource and the environment. But under rationalization, they have a greater impetus to be concerned about those things because it's integral to their business plan. Mm-hmm. They have to think in the long term. And they have to make sacrifices up front for the long-term good of the fishery, and they do that on a regular basis. And so it's uh, very uh, heartening to see where I think that fishermen are, uh, at least in the Bering Sea and my realm of experience, they're very good stewards of the ocean. Yeah. We, want, we want it to be there for future generations. We want it to be there forever. 
we are genuinely concerned about the health and welfare of our of our fishing stocks and and the ocean and all of those things, and we support efforts to maintain the health of the ocean and and of our stocks and breeding programs, all kinds of scientific endeavors. We fund the Bering Search Research Foundation, which is an organization paid for by fishermen and processors to make sure that science is done right and make sure that uh, we've got a good working knowledge of the ecosystem that we participate in. Wow, I didn't know that. That's great. Speaking of the, the future of the industry, long-term in the industry, reading your book, I'm reminded that for a long time, fishing and other aspects of the maritime industry have been really male-dominated. And I guess, what do you think the maritime industry can do to, to better foster diversity, equity, and inclusion? That's a good question. When I started fishing, the crab fisheries in the Bering Sea were primarily Norwegian Americans. Mm-hmm. Scandinavian heritage people, Icelanders came into the fishery. We saw very few people of color. I think I'd probably fish for a decade before I saw first black person in Dutch Harbor. Mm. That's changed now because a lot of refugees from Africa come over and find jobs at fish processing plants. Women would be a good addition. The work is hard. Not every woman would want to do it. Many can. One particular lady that I have so much admiration for was a captain on a crab boat. And her name is Tomi Marsh. She's just a a wonderful lady and a dear friend of mine. And she ran a boat called the Savage. She came out to my boat in a, I had a 180 foot crab catcher processor. And she came out in some terrible weather to drop off some crew or parts or something. She pulled that little savage alongside my boat and just did an amazing job of piloting. I was just so impressed. Really, really had a good head on her shoulders and fearless, totally fearless. And then after she got tied up and I went out on my bridge and I said, Tommy, that was great. She said, oh, thanks, Jake. Here, I baked you some cookies. (laughs) <laughs> and he brought me cookies. <laughs> you know, looking back on your career, what's something you're super proud of? I don't know about proud. I'm really grateful that I never lost a guy. I never lost a boat, and I never lost a, a guy. And it's something I'm not proud of because other people, I mean, it could happen to anybody. And I'm not saying anybody's who loses a guy is at fault or bad or anything else. I'm just grateful that it didn't happen to me. I didn't have to go through that. I'm proud, I guess, that I made it. I was able to do it. I made it as a deckhand. I, I mean, I was, I was the kid that always got picked last for the team in elementary school. You know, when you had to play dodgeball at, at gym, yeah, I, I was the last guy picked. I was the chubby guy and young kid. Usually I was the youngest one in my class and picked on a lot and, and uh, bullied, I guess. and. So I went out on the boats, and I, I proved that I could do it to myself. I doubt very much if a lot of those kids that bullied me could. Mm. Not everybody can. And I had so many guys that were tough guys and football players and all these kind of guys that were just total washouts <laughs> on the boat. They just couldn't do it. 
And uh, so I guess I'm, I'm proud that I was able to do it. You proved yourself to yourself. And that's really something to say. It seems as though we are now finally emerging from lockdown, quarantine, masking, all that due to the pandemic. How would you rate what you've seen of the maritime industry in terms of how it met the challenges of the pandemic? I think overall, I think we did a pretty good job of being aware and, and trying to keep everybody safe. You know, on the boat, you're in close quarters all the time. If somebody gets COVID on a crab boat, everybody's going to get COVID on that boat. Mm-hmm. So that happened in a few cases, but I think overall it did pretty well. Yeah, I agree. I was, uh, from what I was able to see, I was really impressed with the development of protocols, the adherence to them, and really, at least from what I saw, companies not thinking, gosh, this is going to cost me a lot of money. It was just, this is what we have to do. We have to do this the right way, and we have to keep going. And maybe part of that was updating protocols from SARS or what have you, but I was I was similarly impressed by the response. So we've talked a lot about your your work life, Jake, and I know you you like to be busy, but what's something that you like to do when you're not working? Well, this might sound funny, but I make jewelry. Do you really? I do. <laughs> what kind? I make necklaces. I don't wear any jewelry. I, I don't even wear my wedding ring because it irritates me to have to have things on me and I'm on boats all the time where there are electrical fixtures and I don't want my gold band to come in contact with any electricity. And I don't wear jewelry for a number of reasons, but I do enjoy pretty glittery things and making jewelry. <laughs> That's so great. I'm a fisherman to a guy who makes necklaces. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly some eclectic talents you've got. Well, I've got to let our listeners know, Jake, about your website. It's it's www.bearingseacaptain.com. There's a ton of information about you, your book. There's companion information for the chapters, video, audio, lots of great stuff. But what's the best way for our audience to connect with you if they've got more questions for you or just want to chat you up sometime? Yeah, I think it's through the website. I think there's a contact um, page on that website, and I get things on occasion from people, questions and comments, but mostly spam, uh, people that want to, people that don't think I did a good jo- good enough job on my website and want to design me a new one. Have you heard of that before? Yeah, 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 they'll make you, they'll make you a deal to, uh, to redesign your website. Well, so, so listeners want to reach out to Jake, uh, go to uh, bearingseacaptain.com. You can submit a question or a comment and that sounds great. Well, Jake, Thanks so much for joining us today. And thank you, listeners. That's all we have for this episode. And so we'll see you next time when you know it's Maritime. <laughs>